Hey, Anna, I am so excited to have our roundtables now available as a podcast, but I'm even more excited to have our first actual sponsor for Everything Conducting, Cufflinks.com. Anna, can you tell us more about them? Yes. Cufflinks.com is a small family-run business by three brothers who have had a history of supporting music and helping musicians look their best. Cufflinks.com offers over 40 brands and 3,000 items to elevate each conductor's individuality. I had so much fun looking through everything that they had. Harry Potter, Marvel, the NFL teams, and Star Wars. And it's not just Cufflinks. I got myself a pair of pocket squares. And for a special bonus to our listeners, mention Conduct15 for 15% off your next purchase. That is C-O-N-D-U-C-T-1-5 for 15% off your next purchase with no minimum. Enjoy Cufflinks.com, everybody. And now on to the roundtable. Hello and welcome everyone to the latest Everything Conducting Roundtable. We are so extremely fortunate to have with us today two absolute legends in our industry and two of the longest serving American music directors of American orchestras, and we cannot wait to dive in. Our two guests pretty much don't need any introduction, but you know what? I'm going to make Enrico do it anyways. Enrico, take it away. (laughs) Thank you so much, Ankush. Our first conductor (laughs) is Joanne Folletta, music director of the Buffalo Philharmonic, also music director laureate of the Virginia Symphony Orchestra, principal guest conductor of the Brevard Music Center, and artistic advisor of the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra. Welcome and thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. Delighted to be here. And also joining us is Maestro Leonard Slatkin, music director laureate of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, director musical honoraire of the Orchestra Nationale de Lyon, and conductor laureate of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, and currently principal guest conductor of the Orquesta Filarmonica de Gran Canaria. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. And maestro and maestra, Joanne and Leonard, if I can be so bold, please, please. meet <laughs> Please meet the Everything <laughs> Conducting team. We have Anna Edwards, who's the music director of the Seattle Collaborative Orchestra, the Saratoga Orchestra, and the Pacific Northwest Conducting Institute. We have Enrico Lopez-Yanez, the principal pops conductor of the Nashville Symphony. We have John Devlin, the music director of the Wheeling Symphony. And my name is Ankush Kumar Bahel, and currently music director of the Omaha Symphony. We are so excited to have all of you on this call and we appreciate their t- your time. Um, let's get right into it with our first question from John Devlin. Well, again, thank you to you both for being here. And as Ankush mentioned, you both are extremely long tenured music directors who are American of American orchestras. And as some American music directors just starting out here, one of the challenges that we sometimes face is as we advocate for composers um, who are from this country and alive today, we face some conversations with boards, with committees, with our audience members who are hoping for other things from our orchestras. And we have to formulate great arguments for why that mission of promoting the people who are writing American music today. It's so important. Can you discuss with us, maybe we'll start with you, Maestro Folletta, um, to talk about the way you've navigated those conversations and the way that you've been able to continue that work throughout your entire career? Well, um, I have, and I, and I would love to talk about that because it's been, frankly, one of the most joyful parts of my entire career is American mm-hmm. music and living composers with, with me. Uh, it might have started for me with the Women's Philharmonic long ago because we had our living composers there. And I learned how thrilling it was to work side by side with uh, a composer. To I'm not a composer. I know that Maestro is, uh, Leonard is, but I felt for that time I could, 
I could uh, be in their heads. You know, I could actually uh, be a uh, sort of a fly on the wall and listening to how they were thinking and I could help them. So um, I've found that it's, if you advocate strongly for it, if the composer is with you, if you choose pieces that you are really um, dedicated to, and if you give them adequate time, because part of, the, part of the issue is if you're going to make a case for American music, you have to do it well. You can't do it halfway. I mean, you, you have to spend the time, you have to convince the orchestra that this is a great piece and, and you will. And together you, you, um, you convince the audience. So I think for us, for a long time, American music has been a big part of our, of our seasons. But I do remember John, uh, many years ago when you had to really fight to get any new work on the season. And Maestro Slacken, um, could we swing the question to you and find out your thoughts on the same topic? It's a little different because to me, it's all part of the grand scheme of musical history. Mm. Those of us who are senior in my age group have grown up with particularly the American symphonists, the Harris's, Schumann, Piston, Sessions, Copeland, whoever it happens to be. Right now, I think actually it's a good time for the living American composer. I don't believe I've ever seen seasons that have so many pieces by American composers. Um, this goes hand in hand with certain areas that are going on as part of the social revolution we're experiencing. But I do worry that we are neglecting the past. A lot of those composers I mentioned don't appear on so many orchestra season. And that's kind of like saying, all right, in Germany, we're not going to have much Beethoven. We're not going to have much whoever it happens to be. So to me, growing up in Los Angeles, no, it's not right. You can't grow up in Los Angeles. Uh, <laughs> it was always about giving the broad spectrum of music because my background is not just in so-called classical music. It's in jazz. It's in rock. It's in pop. It's all these things put together. And I, I think we need to put today's music in the context of the history of the American composers. It's not like I didn't do a lot for the contemporary composers, but I always tried to balance them with those who are the classic composers. And I'd like to see more conductors do the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I'm facing at a medium to small sized orchestra here in Wheeling, where we have four masterworks concerts, is that even if we were trying to present the broad spectrum, we couldn't in a in a single year, um, much less have a stance on what we care about the most. So here in Wheeling, we actually say we want to present American music as our foremost uh, priority, and we have to be very careful in how we choose that. Um, would you would you have some advice about how to create those arguments? arguments for your community about what your orchestra stands for, as well as being that compendium of the type of musical history that we also feel the need to present, uh, especially for the lone artistic entity in a city doing this type of work. Every orchestra is local. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. And you have to gauge your public. You have to understand what your public wants and also make a supposition as to what they need. So if I was leading an orchestra similar to Wheeling, obviously I would do what you're doing, get to know your board, get to know your public, and then decide 
where their tastes really lie. Obviously, an orchestra like yours is going to focus mostly on the conventional standard repertoire, and that's perfectly fine. But the more conventional and standard it is, the more room you have to play around with another piece on a program. One area that I know Joanne is wonderful at, I've been doing it forever, and I think should be taught in music schools, is the ability for not just conductors, but all musicians to communicate verbally to their audience. Because even though there might be reluctance to look at a program and see a name you don't know, if you can spend some time just casually talking to the audience about what they're going to hear, if it's a complicated work, obviously not too complicated, what to listen for, but not with the idea of making a judgment, just saying, here's what the composer wrote, this is what the composer has tried to do. Your job is to see if the composer succeeded. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes a challenge to the audience can actually be a wonderful thing. You're not really concerned about, well, I didn't like that first piece. That, that might happen. But on the other hand, you know your audience. And you know today, especially, since most composers, most, are writing in very conservative styles, it's probably not as much a problem as it was, say, 10, 15 years ago. And maybe to close this topic, Joanne, you mentioned that when you present new music, you must fully believe in it and do it well as a core component for success as an endeavor. Um, how do you, with the busy schedules we all have, ensure that as you are going to commission a new work, or if you're going to present the next new work from a composer you've previously believed in and want to continue supporting and championing them, how do you make sure that you're finding those works and what qualifies for you as one that you would fully believe in and bring to your new audience? Um, that is communicative. And that's the main thing for me. I, I, it's not a certain style. And, and as Leonard said, there, there are a lot of accessible styles that we, we hear now. But something that says something to the audience, and even if, if, if they leave feeling not sure if they liked it, but they're talking about it, they're thinking about it, uh, I do a lot of research with composers. I, I listen to their music for sometimes for several years before choosing them to commission or even to choose a piece because mm -hmm. I take it very seriously. And I feel if I, I really undermine our case for new music if it's not successful. So for me, it's very important that it's a piece I believe in and that we really, really rehearse it and that the composer is with us. So, so mm -hmm. that, that helps us. And I, I'm sure you do this, John, um, but talking to the audience in a pre-concert talk, that, that makes a big difference from the podium, a post-concert talk back where they get to ask questions. So they're part of your world. And they may ask you, why'd you choose that? You know, so they want to, they want to understand. Uh, and um, I think it doesn't matter if, if you can't fit everything into your concert season. What you do do, you do with, with, with great uh, commitment and that, they'll never forget those works. I would add one thing to this. At the time when I was doing a lot of new music, either commissioning it or pieces that existed that I wanted to do, I asked myself one question. If I was in the audience, would I enjoy this? And would I understand it on a first hearing? because audiences are going to hear it just one time. Mm -hmm. So you're not probably, for the most part, looking at these pieces 
where the first is simply a little bit of a, an appetizer and you dive into whatever it is that's in the middle of the plate later on. No, it has to be something that people can assimilate on the first hearing, maybe not understand it entirely, but at least reaches them in some way. I'm going to jump in here for just a second because, um, first of all, I, I want to mention that I admire what both of you all have done for music, new music, and being part of the history of what our current history is. We're going to have amazing, um, uh, as people look back during our time, I think that they're going to see so many changes. And one of the things that I'm personally interested in is the social change, um, Leonard, as you were saying earlier on. And um, I have been very interested in gender and diversity. And Joanne, uh, I, I'm sure you don't remember, but um, I had a fantastic conversation with you while you were driving in a car for my dissertation, uh, which was gender in the symphonic conductor. Yes, and yes. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, but I remember that. you have been uh, so influential. Um, and I, I want to kind of change a little bit the, the conversation to a little bit more to the conductors. And I would love to hear both of your um, perspectives on this, because not only do you know so many people who are both um, you know, women and men, but as women are getting more um, prominent in these roles, we talked quite a bit about leadership and um, on the podium. And I would love to talk with you a little bit about the, um, this. And I would like to start with you, Joanne, if you don't mind. And then, Leonard, I know that you have had so many um, experiences also, but I would love for you to talk about um, comfortable confidence on the podium as as conductors are are finally being able to get on that podium in front of the large orchestras and the great orchestras. Um, uh, so, Joanne, I'd love to start with you on that question. Well, I think that um, confidence and comfort is is very important. That that you you were there because you want to be there. You believe in the music. You're happy to be with the musicians and with your own orchestra. There is. I always feel a sense of joy coming into rehearsal, seeing everybody and starting starting a piece that maybe, you know, we've, we haven't played for a while. Um, but it comes down to really mutual respect. If the orchestra feels that you respect them and then that they're at the heart of what you're doing, I think you will find that they're much more receptive to being adventurous, trying some things that you're asking them to, to uh, consider. Um, and exploring things with them. We do a lot of music that's not been played in our recording, recordings with Noxos. So um, I have to, I have to have their trust, and uh, and, and 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 their belief uh, in in what we're doing together. So um, I think it, it, you know, for a conductor, for a young conductor, it just takes time to develop that feeling that um, uh, this is a great thing that we're doing together. But it it comes from at the core respecting and and really liking being with musicians um, so that's that's uh, that still gives me a lot of joy even if it's an orchestra that I don't know at all I feel a sense of joy when I when I meet them and um, and we play together that's lovely <laughs> and well, and Leonard yeah, yeah I would love to ask you too I mean you've had such a long history with um, all sorts of people coming around you. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? We are at a really incredibly 
transition time in the musical world. Usually it just progresses in a normal fashion. Conductors come and go and that's it. But the confluence of woke movement, of Black Lives Matter, of more calls for diversity, coronavirus kind of played into all this. Everything has changed. Everything is different. And in some ways, it's created more opportunities for many people, particularly the female conductors. There are more now than there were two years ago. It's quite astonishing to look at a symphony's roster and see conductors who don't look like the ones who usually were there, except for Joanne. Um, so with that comes a great responsibility, obviously, and a great deal of pressure. You're expected to be not only as good, but better. And that does stem from the confidence. So one thing I would really suggest, each conductor, I believe, needs a mentor. That doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who's a musician, but it needs someone to say, you're ready for this. Because too often, people are so anxious to get the date that they take it without really being ready for it and certainly not prepared for the ultimate consequences, which could be positive, but could be devastating as well. Know your stuff when you get on the podium, because remember, an orchestra and an audience make their first opinion about the conductor, not from when they conduct. They make it from the point when they are going on to the stage. They see something. And that confidence needs to be reflected in how you go out, how you greet the orchestra, all these kind of things. Choosing your words carefully when you speak to the orchestra makes a very big difference. But most of all, it's what Joanne was talking about earlier. You have to have ultimate belief and commitment to each and every note, even if you don't like it. These days, a lot of conductors get assigned pieces to do, even for debuts with big orchestras. And it may be a piece you can't stand, but when you're young and starting out, for that one week, you have to do that piece it is the masterpiece that you never thought would ever be written. So confidence is really important and not putting the emphasis on yourself. Everything is about the music that's that you're going to play, showing how much you care about it, all those things, that's what's gonna make the difference. And that's what actually might help you not only get re-engaged, but perhaps other people come and see you and you have a chance to move on. And if I just might interject one more question. Um, thank you so much, Linda. It's, it's so inspiring to hear you talk. And, um, you know, Joanne, you're someone who I look um, up so much to because as a female and as a person who is teaching so many young, younger women who are trying to get up into those ranks, what are some... Um, things that you would suggest, and not even just for women, I mean, it can be for anyone, obviously, but maybe for someone who is not the normal, you know, and I quote, put that in quotes, um, you know, there's still no one in the top, you know, uh, orchestras, obviously, that are female or, uh, you know, like African-American or Hispanic. I'm trying to think if that's true. 
Um, uh, Depends on your definition of top. (laughs) Right. Well, that's true. That's that's right. But, you know, I guess I'm thinking about um, when I was doing my dissertation, we were talking about the highest um, budgeted orchestras, right? So as we are are trying to make changes um, as we go through, what are some things that we all can do um, as we teach young up-and-coming musicians? And those up-and-coming musicians who really want to get to those ranks, what are some things that you um, feel would be helpful for them to think about as they are going there as far as their confidence goes? Well, you know, the, the one thing that I think is so important is what we thought of as when we were being trained to be conductors, that it is a very long road ahead of you. Mm. And it it unravels very slowly. You don't go from Manus or from Manhattan School of Music or Juilliard to usually to conducting the, the Los Angeles Philharmonic. I mean, that, 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 that's a... That's a difficult thing if it happens. You, you, you are a very lucky young conductor if your career is built in stages where you're working with an orchestra that's maybe not really advanced and needs you and you need to know what to say uh, and then slowly developing so that you're learning. Because frankly, when we graduate from conducting school, we know very little, really very little. We may know how to start to study but um, we need those levels. What's happening now is a little dangerous only in that in trying to rectify the fact that we haven't had many women uh, in in prominent roles, uh, they want to put them there right away. And that's very difficult for these young people or people of diversity who don't have the opportunity to learn to be an assistant conductor, to be an associate Mm. conductor, Mm -hmm. to work with a a metropolitan orchestra um, because you, you have to do that. There's no, there's no shortcuts. I guess I could say there's no shortcuts. So I always tell young conducting students, you know, be, be patient and, and study, 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 and don't be anxious to, to take, the, the one thing that maybe you don't feel so comfortable about. It may be the wrong thing to do at this point. But patience is hard, especially when things seem to be happening very fast. Yeah, on the other side of that, though, of course, is that when you're young and an opportunity presents itself, you got to take it and you just have to be ready for it. When I jumped in in 74 uh, for Ricardo Muti with the Philharmonic, he actually was supposed to arrive and he wasn't on the plane and they called me uh, and they took a chance. So it was for coffee of five, fine, no problem. Third piano concerto Beethoven with Byron Janis. I'd worked with Byron, that was good. Waverly Overture Berlioz, I said, sure, no problem. That (laughs) night I spent all evening learning the Waverly Overture, I had no idea what it was. Uh, So, but by the time I got there, I, I really knew the piece very, very well and you have to. So preparation, just being ready. And on top of that, again, part of our change in society and life is moving outside what might be the comfort zone. Uh, You have now to be prepared to learn to read lead sheets. You have to learn to do pops concerts. You have to be familiar with more styles than we've ever had before. Uh, that's, That's part of it. So, Everything becomes equal when you're young. They're equally important. I gave the world premiere of Jesus Christ Superstar live performance. <laughs> and, you know, and that actually was one launch point because every orchestra manager and agent came out to see it. And so to some degree, you know, I can say that helped push me. So you're always looking for 
these opportunities. Don't don't turn them down, but don't do them unless you really think you can handle them. Uh, that's a tough decision to make. Everybody thinks they can do everything. You know, the sooner you can decide what you don't do well, that's really the best decision you can make. Not what you do well, what you don't do well, and then stay away from that. I'd love to zoom out just a little bit. And as we look at our industry, one thing that historically has been very true is that most music directors of certainly tier one and tier two orchestras have been non-American conductors, uh, primarily European. Um, but over time, I mean, the two of you are some of the few living American conductors who have led major symphony orchestras in this country. I wonder what your pitch to boards and you know administrators of these major orchestras would be for reasons why it would be worthwhile to choose a American composer to lead or American conductor to lead an American orchestra. Um, maybe Maestro Folletto, we could start with you. You know, it's it's a big mystery to me. And and I I I guess I I understand the sort of cachet of having a European background or South American background and being being kind of glamorous and different in that way. But but American music directors have to do so much that is rooted in who we are as a country. Uh, they have to understand so much about their community, about fundraising, about marketing, uh, about reaching people, about understanding, about education, the American education system. There's so much that we, we have to know to help our orchestras be successful that I'm surprised sometimes that, that, that there are not more American music directors. And I don't know if, if um, Maestro Slacken would, would comment on that because it's, it, it doesn't seem on the surface to make sense, but, but uh, it's, been a, it's been a way things are, have been working in our country. It is strange, but again, it's part of the transition time that we're in. We did have, for a while, a period when several of us were out there on the scene all the time. It was me and Mike Thomas and Jerry Schwartz and David Zinman, Spano, so forth and so on, yourself. And then there were a lot of us at the same time, and we were all doing relatively well. And then it fell off again. But I think some of this is not the fault of the boards of directors, and fault maybe is the wrong word. You're always looking for the person you think is the best fit with the orchestra. But these days, the orchestras themselves have more say-so than who their music director is going to be. Uh, we can see that with some recent appointments in the last year. Uh, and part of it's convincing other musicians that that's important. I think a lot of our musicians are influenced by the more exotic accent. They feel it brings a kind of gravitas to their work and all that. Whereas here, we're just going, okay, guys, why don't we start a letter? <laughs> you know, we're like that. Um, uh, and also, because of how the rehearsals are structured in the United States, we don't have a lot of time to put programs together. The clock is the enemy of the conductor, always. And in Europe, where many of these conductors come from, they will have a little bit more, maybe in some cases a lot more time to put the music together. So we get used to doing everything in a compressed time. And often orchestras don't like that. As much as we say they don't want to hear you talk all the time, some of them do. They want to see that you 
know when the sun is coming out and the rays of light are coming down in the uh, beginning of the second half of the suite. I just go, it's too loud. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> so I think part of this really is um, a built-in prejudice, if you will, on if they come from such and such place, they have to be more inclusive. So what's the secret? What's going to be the trick to do this? It's going to be about the repertoire. It's going to be about finding some area. It doesn't have to be American, but it helps. Areas of music that other people don't do. I mean, how many more Mahler cycles do we need? Even Beethoven cycles. Yes, we all want to make our marks with this. But no, if you're a young conductor now and you're an American conductor, kind of do, I think, what I started to say and what Joanne talks about. Explore the repertoire of this country because there will there will be a market for it if you're open to the fact that the repertoire of this country includes not only the great composers of so-called classical music, but those who reached out and went in different directions. If you need a composer to go to, to get those different directions, look at almost any piece by Bill Balcom. He's got all those styles in there. That's great advice. Uh, Maestro Folletta, do you have any advice for the young American conductors looking to break into the cachet of non-American music directors? <laughs> well, you know, again, have, have certain things that you do that are um, interesting, you know, so that it's, it's um, uh, uh, a different repertoire, you know, repertoire that you've, you've kind of specialized in or uh, a certain, even certain pieces that, that you have uh, maybe a connection to because you know the composer or you've worked on it with the composer. So, so that, um, uh, that that level of connection presents itself to the orchestra. And um, I, I, think, I think we're moving, I, I really believe we're moving towards more Americans on the podium. I really think that, but, but, um, but everything that Lennon says is, is making me smile because it, it's absolutely true. I mean, the accent and the, and, and you would be surprised uh, at how many musicians make a decision about a conductor based on one concert. Yeah. You know, one concert and it's a big program and maybe something they haven't done in a long time. And, and they're just dazzled by that. And they're convinced that this is their next music director and it doesn't always work out. So and, and part of that is the process by which orchestras select their music director. Yes, the first thing has to be, they have to be good, fine, solid conductors and musicians, but there are all the other things that go into being a music director in this country. It is involvement in the community. It's actually, even though some orchestras only have their educational programs led by covers or assistants, no, the music director should be involved in every aspect of that as well. Get involved. And one other thing, I think, again, part of our transition time, use the technology we have now. I get asked often by other conductors, oh, how do I get a manager? Well, I'm not so certain five years from now we're going to have managements anymore because a lot of us can do it ourselves. You, you have the ability to be your own manager now and get your information out to others. The level of managements now, it's not the same as it was. There, these huge agencies don't mean at all what they meant in the past. They're not as influential as they used to be. So if you can be creative and use social media and other forms 
to get your ideas out there. So people, oh, look what that person is doing. Maybe we should take a look at that. I think that's what's going to be coming down the line five years from now, maybe less. I wonder, just because I've been asked this very randomly, but I have noticed that some young Americans will go spend time in Europe or try and get a small position there to then transition back and maybe appear more exotic since they've been abroad for a little while. Do you have any thoughts on that process or experience? Uh, you know, Joanna and I are two very good examples of conductors who made the majority of their careers here in the States. So it certainly can be done. Who's our... Uh, go-to person, Bernstein. He was the first one to do that. Mm -hmm. Establish the fact that an American can make a career in America. I don't know necessarily that going and conducting in Europe will really impact a decision about being a music director here in the States. Uh, probably less so now, uh, but uh, I mean, it, it's good. I mean, of course, obviously you want to conduct everywhere you can. I would actually be looking the other side of the other pond more towards Asian markets, which are really happy to see people from other countries coming in and doing sort of mostly to gather experience for yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, it may not mean as much as conducting in Vienna or Berlin, even if it's smaller orchestras, but I, I'm not convinced that today being a music director of a European orchestra helps you get an orchestra in the States. Yeah, I agree. I agree with Leonard. I think that in the past, it it looked very good to go and study in Europe because somehow people felt that 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 education was deeper and more profound. And so you come back having spent two or three years in Vienna and that meant something. Uh, but conducting training today is on such a high level. And there's, you know, American conductors are taught to do anything and, and are taught how to work constructively with orchestras, I don't think it matters as much anymore. But that doesn't mean to say that uh, an orchestra is not dazzled by the foreignness of their music director candidate and, and that, that still has, has an impact. The only thing I'm thinking about when you guys are talking about this, and I agree with you, I think it's less of less of a a necessity to be in Europe, but perhaps like we've talked about in terms of growing and making those mistakes, if you're insulated by a pond on the left or the right of America, maybe they don't hear about every little thing you do uh, in every concert because it's just it's <laughs> over there. And if you make the mistakes for the first 10, 20 years of your career, you come back and it's like your your brand new, clean, beautiful thing that um, no one heard about your bad concert with the Jerusalem Symphony. <laughs> perhaps. That's my only... Sense. Yeah, but, but you can make the same mistakes in a small orchestra. It, yes, uh, I sure. think I think uh, Joanne was really right earlier on when she talked about try to go to orchestras that are not so good. I was <laughs> uh, I was somewhere a couple of weeks ago, and I had a, there was a cover conductor, and he talked about um, uh, how he well, I was near Philharmonic at Vale, but and I, I had a one re one rehearsal program, and it was. You know, it's what it is. And you, you, for those kind of things, you, you just pick your battles, decide what you want to say and to get out. And he said that he found it much more difficult to conduct far lesser orchestras. I said, you're absolutely right. Anybody can get a Tchaikovsky 5 with the New York Philharmonic. It's, it's not a problem. But it's when you get to those other orchestras, that's when you learn your craft. So... 
taking these small groups, smaller orchestras, when you can get them, community orchestras, form your own orchestras, small or whatever, get the experience of conducting so you learn what the mistakes are. And by learning mistakes, another thing to do, really important, go to as many rehearsals of other orchestras and conductors as you can. And what you're looking for is not what goes well, you're looking for what doesn't work so you can avoid those problems. Because if all you do is say, oh, I'll take that away. Oh, what a nice retard over here. Lovely gesture with the left hand. All you're doing is imitating. You wanna make sure you don't make the same mistakes that each and every one of us still make today. I'd love to continue with that part of the conversation. Going way back to when you guys started, what other advice, pieces of advice could you offer younger conductors? Meister, you said going to rehearsals, you know, of course, being super prepared in case you have to jump in and things like that. But just going way back, build, what helped you build confidence? What helped you build repertoire besides being with these smaller orchestras? What made you guys stand out to, to get the, the, the great careers that you um, were able to establish and continue at such high level in, in America? And if you want to go backwards or forwards or any any part of your career, that any advice would be so helpful to us. Maestro Fletta, perhaps. Well, Maestro. you know, I, I think I think it's very important to have places where you can fail, if I can say it like that. Please. Um, uh, because it's it's important to make those mistakes. You will make we all make those mistakes, but you're going to make a lot of mistakes mm -hmm. when you're a young conductor. So when you're conducting the Queen's Philharmonic, which is a quasi uh, quasi community orchestra, you know, with bolstered by students from from music schools who want to learn to play this music, uh, you can learn a lot. You, they can help you learn a lot. And um, and just try and find those situations, even if in school, while you're in school, getting a group together to play L'Histoire de Soldat or the Stravinsky Octet, anything you can do where it's it's safe to try. Uh, and, and you have friends there who can say, you know, that tempo is really unplayable. And, mm -hmm. and they're telling you that because they care about you and they want you to do well. Um, don't skip those. So don't be the kind of young conductor who says, oh, I, that's, I'm too good for that orchestra. Or I'm too good to conduct that concert. I'm waiting. Uh, you know, I, 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 I went to Juilliard. I can't do that, that sort of thing. No, I mean, you, you, you would be very lucky to have all of those situations where you can grow slowly and where the orchestra trusts you enough to forgive a lot of mistakes. Um, I, think, I think that that's the great fortune of my career is that it started in that way and it, it let me learn it let me make mistakes um now we can't always design our careers and as as uh, leonard said if you're offered a great concert and you can be ready go for it go for it but um uh but to try and conduct as much as you can uh even small ensembles and and uh, get yourself more confident that way and one thing I did when I was really starting out, um, just to earn money to be able to put groups together, I loaded dress racks in downtown Los Angeles, moving them from <laughs> one department store to the other. Uh, I played lounge piano when I was 16, quite illegally. Uh, <laughs> I, made, I, I made good bucks for that one, actually. Uh, so do whatever you can to put these groups together. John's absolutely right. Whatever you can to conduct. But think of clever ideas that can transcend just that. I remember uh, one year I was doing some teaching at Indiana University and they were asking, well, what should we do to get noticed? I said, you know, here's an example. 
it's a Haydn centenary or what, whatever it was. And I said, what if over the course of the entire school year, you just pulled groups together and casually read through all of the symphonies, <laughs> just starting with number one and getting through 104 or number 107, whatever. <laughs> I said, it may not mean much, but if you get a little bit of word out, people will find out you've done something interesting something different. So that's really important. Uh, for me, again, starting out was just learning everything, learning as much as I could about the repertoire uh, and picking what I thought was important. I, it was a conscious decision for me to say, I'm gonna make a career in the States. I'm gonna focus on American music, Russian music and English music and then uh, uh, the French came in a little bit later, but I, I knew where I wanted to go and I knew where my strengths were. So if you can, the earlier you can determine that, the better. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do the other music, of course not, but have a few strengths where people rely on your ideas and your opinions. And uh, Maestro Slatkin, one of the things that caught my ear earlier was you said, go to rehearsals yeah. and find out what other conductors have uh, made in terms of errors that you can avoid. Um, it sounds like you've gone to rehearsals and discerned <laughs> that. Would you mind sharing a few of the ones that stand out for you that may be unexpected things for young conductors? Well, the, the obvious one is understanding time management. Uh, especially watching conductors who are young and just starting out. They want to make an impression right away. They'll, with any luck, they'll play through the first piece, but often they stop and they start talking right away. And eventually, as the rehearsal comes to an end, they run out of time and they don't even get to the last piece on the schedule. You can't do that. You really have to come in to rehearsals these days with a game plan. Know what you want to accomplish how you're going to do it over that time frame? That that was something I really learned. I learned that often guest conductors and even music directors sometimes don't know the rules of an orchestra. They don't know uh, when the break is supposed to occur. They don't know how much time it will take. Does opening announcements to the orchestra count on orchestra time, or is it before? Each orchestra is a little different. So I think that's. Those, those kind of things. But also, again, I've, I've seen conductors just try to talk their way out of mistakes rather than saying, I messed up. Right. Don't blame the orchestra for something you did wrong. Or at least always, when something's not right, ask yourself, what did I not do that I should have? And then if you can't answer that, maybe then it's okay to blame the orchestra. Um, but um, these days... Uh, do you know there's a clause in the New Jersey Symphony contract that says the conductor can't scowl at the orchestra? Hmm. So we, we have all these things now. It, I've never known a contract that got smaller. They keep getting bigger <laughs> because everything grows. And, and you have to know that when you, when you go in. So I, I certainly saw my share of people who got in trouble with time. They just didn't know what to do. Well, I have to I have to jump in here if I could, because I would go and see maestros rehearsals every time we came to the New York Philharmonic and, and, and I was here and I could sense the love of the New York Philharmonic for for you, Leonard, always. And it was it was a, it was an astonishing uh, 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 example of how to treat an orchestra with respect, to know what to say, to know when to say it. 
and to always have a plan because I always felt that there was a great sense of, of, uh, of peacefulness on that stage. You know, this is, they knew they were going to get it done because they knew you so well. It was, it was, it was fantastic to see that. And on the other hand, when you're very young, when you, most young conductors will get a job as an assistant or an associate first. And it's a very hard job because you have to learn a lot of music and you have to do a lot of music in one rehearsal sometimes. So um, uh, Leonard mentioned a plan. Um, I would suggest to people that they actually have a time plan that no one knows about except them. Mm -hmm. That if by 20 minutes into the rehearsal, they're not finished with that first piece, they have to move on. Because mm -hmm. I've heard so many orchestras complain to me that the assistant conductor actually didn't even have a chance to rehearse that final piece. They had to sight read it. And that's not good. And that's, you know, that's just accepting the situation and, and making sure that you keep track of time. Yeah, uh, there are two things that Joanne said that are really important. One of which is she used the word assistant conductor, which in my youth, every orchestra had one. Today, mm -hmm. that is mostly disappeared. They have cover conductors. Or if they have assistants, they're only there during the period when the music director is, very rarely through a whole year. And I, I really wish that could change because a lot of the learning for me was watching how different conductors came in dealing with the same orchestra. What changes did they have to make? Uh, when Ormandy came here to St. Louis and I was the assistant, he did, he did a week and in 10 minutes without saying a word, the orchestra sounded like Philadelphia, just like that. <laughs> and I was watching, how did that happen? You know, that, that's the kind of thing that happens. And, and the other way goes as well. Uh, but the, this business about the time is, is I, I can't emphasize it enough. You have to learn now what to do. It happened to me this couple of weeks ago in Vail. So I did a Tchaikovsky program with the Phil and then a Sondheim program, but nobody had really gone through the Sondheim music. And that stuff is difficult, not the notes, but how many repeats did you, how many vamp bars are you going to do? You don't have usually a conductor score. You got a lead sheet or you have a, piano, vocal, whatever. And we got to West Side Story, the one thing that should have been no problem. <laughs> nope. All of a sudden, some people had things different. First time in more than 20 years, I went overtime. I was so mad at myself. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> but that's, you're, you're at the mercy of the parts that the musicians have in yeah. front of them. And yeah, very it wasn't anybody's fault. And yeah, there, there, there are so many mistakes and inconsistencies that you just do that. Which is another thing all young conductors should actually think about as well. If you have the time and you get to a place early enough or you ask for them, try to take a look at the string parts so you can see what they have in front of you, especially regarding Boeings. And if you don't play a string instrument, that's okay. But I would advise everybody take a few lessons so you understand the mechanics of what strings have to do, because nine out of 10 remarks are going to be to the strings. And even just seeing in the parts, I ask for the concert master parts all the time, um, just seeing what they've done. Is this usually in four or two? Is Are they taking this repeat or not? What's the structure? Do the rehearsal numbers match your letters? Yeah. And, you know, all that stuff. Non-string players, you can just, just, and you'll have all the information before you even get it. It all saves time. Yeah, exactly. It's well, also, I'm, you know, important to know if they're, if their parts are clear. You know, sometimes yeah. you're doing a new work and your score is very clear, but then you take a look at the parts of the strings and, uh, the ledger lines are so close together that they can't really see. So just so that you know what you're dealing with and what discomfort they may be having. Yeah, I find and then when you have the when you have the French repertoire from the older you know, 19th century, all the eighth rests are backwards. Yes, <laughs> which is still confusing to yes. people. I think it helps the orchestra oh, know that you've also, paid attention. 
Another Sorry, thing, Go ahead. Le- le- learn, learn your uh, uh, harmonics, everybody. <laughs> learn, learn where harmonics sounds. And really important, figure out how your divisies are going to work. You explain divisies before you play. So everybody knows how to divide. There are three ways you can look them up. <laughs> Absolute sage advice. Um, I'd like to zoom out a little bit since we have you both on the mic. Um, I would love to hear some stories from you two legends. Like what stands out of the course of your careers? What special projects, concerts, specific collaborations with artists or orchestras that really just stand out? It doesn't have to be a lesson for us, but you can just tell us what you're most proud of or anything that comes to mind would be super enjoyable for our listeners. And Meister Slacken, do you want to start? Well, most proud probably is the creation of the youth orchestra here in St. Louis. There wasn't one when I arrived as the assistant conductor, nothing. And we started from scratch. 600 people auditioned. And one of the rules was you had to be in your school's music program. Three schools had people who could play, but they didn't have a music program. And those schools started a program just so their players could be in the youth orchestra. Today, it's a little harder. I don't know what the rules are, but the orchestra plays well. As far as a memorable experience, I guess for me, the most the difficult and moving was having to do the last night of the proms just three days after 9-11. Last mm-hmm. night of the proms is where it's all English, uh, jingoistic, Rule Britannia, God Save the Queen, Fantasy on the Sea songs, everything's lighthearted. And obviously things had to change. And so we did a, a much more uh, serious program. And as would be expected, I put the Barbara Adagio in the program. And there is a video on YouTube from that performance. Normally it takes me about, I don't know, nine minutes to do the piece, something like that. This one's over 11. It, it just couldn't be, I, I didn't think about it and I'm crying and all that. And it was really one of those moments that you just go, this changed me. The odd thing was I got death threats from people who complained, how dare you change our traditions? Now America knows what the rest of the world knows. Things like that. Uh, it was a truly astonishing moment in my life to realize how much impact negative and positive you can have on people. Wow. Meister Faletta. Well, uh, on a much wow. smaller scale, uh, after 9-11, uh, we happened to have programmed, uh, of course, months and months in advance, the Beethoven 9 and mm. the Vaughn Williams uh, fantasy on the theme of Thomas Tallis. So that program, uh, was actually a, a spiritual experience for everyone in that room. I mean, even singing the national anthem, which we did at the beginning, was was beyond anything I've ever experienced. But I guess we all remember the, also the wonderful, happy things, taking the, the, the Buffalo Philharmonic to Poland and, mm. and having the people play for the first time, you know, overseas. And, uh, but frankly, what I'm proudest of is something, I think, very mon- that's very mundane. And that is that slowly, 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 you work to get the orchestra to become a very vital part of the community so that at some point, everyone in that city knows, oh yeah, yeah, we have that with Buffalo Philharmonic. I, I, I hear them in the summertime, I go to the parks concerts or I go hear them at the baseball field, just so that your efforts to, to completely make them absolutely essential 
to the life of a city because Leonard said something that at the beginning that is, I think we should all have it on our desks. Every orchestra is local. You know, it, it doesn't really matter what the League of American Orchestra says about you. It matters that your community embraces you and takes care of you. And I think we all saw that during the pandemic. The orchestras that survived it the best were those who, who really had the love of their community around them. Joanna's slightly underestimating herself. Every place she has been, every orchestra that she's led, she has had that community involvement, whether it was here in the States or elsewhere. Uh, it's been a remarkable career. And, and I'm so proud of you for doing all the things you have done, expanding the repertoire, building these orchestras, making them an integral part of the musical fabric and the cultural fabric of the places where you are. You, you're, you're a true rare soul. Leonard, you were always my <laughs> icon. And, and if it, you, the example you set for all American conductors, it could never be equal. And I, I, I'm sure I, everyone would say the same thing. I can't think of a more beautiful note to end on. So I'm just gonna leave it there. Um, you guys are both beautiful souls, beautiful um, role models. And we're so lucky to have had you on this call today. Um, so thanks everyone. Um, I just wanna zoom out a little bit and talk, talk about our website. It's called everythingconducting.com. We're doing our best to build uh, some advice, some some roundtables, as the one you heard today. Uh, Enrico and John have a fantastic upbeat podcast where they interview special guests and also speak through some more detail um, work that they do with their orchestras and their preparation. Um, Anna Edwards um, came on board because because we all knew her and loved her, but also because she's such a, so committed to. Uh, new living composers of diverse backgrounds. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but she's during the pandemic, she, every day she would highlight a composer in a piece that she'd talk about on social media and ended up being up, what, Anna, a hundred days of listening and more than that. I think you rounded out at a hundred. So she, she has articles on our website about, um, you know, wonderful living composers that would might fit a particular need for you, whether it's a string orchestra or a concerto or a non-piano violin concerto. So we've used those resources all the time. We have an article database as well, another resource page. I've contributed some articles about um, what I've learned in my, I don't know, 10, 20 years of conducting as well. And Enrico, John, and Anna have all contributed articles as well. So thank you guys for being a part of this uh, roundtable today. Thank you all for listening to this fantastic, fantastic, fantastic um, hour of your life. Um, Thank you, everyone. And I just want to say goodbye for now. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.